For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. Governor Stitt is delaying his decision on the commutation hearing for death row inmate Julius Jones. While the Pardon and Parole Board has recommended Jones' death sentence be commuted to life with the possibility of parole, Stitt says he wants to wait for the board's clemency hearing on October 5th. Meanwhile, Jones awaits an execution on November 18th. Ryan, what does this delay mean for Jones? Well, you know, I think folks that, including myself, that were uh, excited uh, and hopeful with the Partner Parole Board's three-to-one vote, I mean, an overwhelming, clear vote of recommendation to Governor Stitt uh, for commutation to life with the possibility of parole for Mr. Jones, I think everybody was excited that that was going to the governor's office with such strong support from the Pardon and Parole Board. Um, but and so there's there is some disappointment that there wasn't an initial uh, just acceptance of that recommendation. That said, you know, the governor's decision here doesn't have anything to do with with the merits of uh, Mr. Jones case to the Pardon and Parole Board and ultimately to the governor for uh, for clemency. And so this is a bad matter of process. And I think that we can all respect the fact that the governor is really dedicating a significant amount of time and bandwidth to trying to make the best decision that he can here. Uh, I think that he's going to visit with the victim's family. I think he's going to visit with the defense counsel in this case. And that's, uh, I think that's a very good sign. And it's a recognition, I believe, from Governor Stitt that this is a very consequential decision that's in his hands right now. Um, this is a decision that has finality to it in a way that no other decision uh, in the criminal justice system uh, does. And so you know, having him step up and say, I, you know, I want to have that full, you know, more comprehensive clemency review before the partner parole board, um, you know, while it's not the immediate result that supporters of Mr. Jones had wanted. Uh, I don't think that it is um, indicative that the governor has foreclosed the idea of granting some sort of clemency to Mr. Jones uh, after the partner pro board votes again. And I think that, you know, it's it's probably if we look at a three to one vote, uh, depending on if there are any additional recusals, um, I think that there's a good chance that we see another three to one vote. I think the only real downside to this is that it will give um, folks like the Oklahoma County District Attorney's Office longer to be able to try to interfere with the decision-making process with the part of parole board. Neva. Well, I, I think that the governor made it clear, as we've just have talked about, this clemency hearing is the appropriate venue uh, when the state is considering a, a, a death penalty case. Mm -hmm. And in this instance, what it really provides for everyone is a more thorough, a more extensive uh, review uh, and during this hearing, it will allow for the uh, the, the uh, inmate to speak publicly if he chooses. It will allow for the family, uh, the victim's family, the attorneys on both sides, just as Ryan mentioned. Uh, so it allows for a very uh, very comprehensive uh, vetting process for this for this kind of final phase in the decision making. And I think clearly both sides are not going to change their minds. I mean, mm -hmm. the folks that uh, believe that uh, uh, Julius Jones uh, should be uh, should be uh, uh, given the uh, not given the death sentence, but that that the Senate should be changed to life with the possibility of parole. That's the one side. The family has made it clear that they believe that this pardon and parole board uh, acted, in their words, uh, irresponsibly, uh, recklessly, I think were the words that were used uh, with regard to recommending the commutation. And I think uh, 
I think it allows, again, as we say, for all parties to uh, go through this process. There's a timeline uh, with this clemency hearing being set for October 26th and the date for the execution having already been set for November 18th. So we will see final resolution uh, in, a, in very short order. But again, as Ryan said, from the, from the perspective of the public looking at this, there is a process and it is taking place mm -hmm. and we will see what the outcome is. You know, one ancillary uh, issue here, and you know, of course, you know, Julius Jones' fate is, is the most important uh, uh, issue at hand here, uh, obviously. But I think an ancillary issue here that is important is that for so long in Oklahoma uh, and everywhere else, we've had a very binary conversation around capital punishment. Either you're for it or you're against it. And I'm hoping that as Oklahomans uh, through this process become more familiar with the procedures that are in place, whether they're good or bad, regardless of where you stand on the death penalty, you know, this may lead to a more transparent and more accountable system uh, for the fail safes that need to be in place before the government uses and exercises its most awesome authority. Right. Governor Stitt has set a date for a special legislative session on redistricting. Starting on November 15th, lawmakers will draw out Oklahoma's five congressional districts, redraw state House and Senate district lines based off the 2020 census numbers, and amend candidacy and residency deadlines based off the delay in getting the data. Neva, how long do you think this will take? Well, I think the expectation, at least by leadership, what they've expressed is that they hope to be in and out in a week, that this is a, a specific uh, uh, set call, the, the items outlined that uh, you just mentioned. And so the work has been done. I mean, it's been done for more than a year now. I mean, leading up, even waiting for those final numbers to come in from the Census Bureau and uh, then in the last several months for the legislative process to be to really refine and finalize those numbers to get to get down to what they need in the ideal district population on the house district uh, number it's about 39,000 plus the senate districts a little over uh, 82 almost 82,500 and then the congressional districts that's where you know the 791,000 plus number i mean dividing the state and getting uh and getting something that all of the delegation uh, can agree to and that can move through and get finalized in this process, it's very important. I mean, there's not, uh, now time is of the essence. I mean, I think as we see these lines, some of them are going to change uh, minimally and some will change uh, somewhat dramatically. I mean, in terms of uh, current lawmakers having uh, districts that will have a uh, a significant number of new folks in their district that they didn't have at their last election. So in many cases, um, they may feel like they've almost got a new district that they're that they're running in. So and I think the other the other aspect of this uh, is the fact that they have uh, made an allowance to deal with the idea of the residency requirement and the six months, because as we all know, I mean, if someone files for office, one of the first things typically the opponent checks is are they are they a legitimate uh, resident in that district have they been there the prescribed uh, period of time if not it's challengeable and oftentimes uh, we have seen uh, folks file for office and subsequently be knocked off the ballot because they didn't uh, they didn't follow the uh, the specific uh, uh, lines that have been set in terms of the time frame so i think um, a lot of the work has been done uh, leading up to this so that 
they're they really are really putting a final point to it and, mm-hmm. and taking a vote and making it uh, making it what will stand in place now for the next decade. And I think uh, I think most people hope that it will be uh, just that, that they'll be able to come in, do the business. Uh, many of the many of the things, such as a joint hearing presenting the, the final maps of the House and Senate uh, redistricting committees have talked about doing this beforehand, you know, continuing mm-hmm. to try to uh, involve not only the public in the process, but make sure that every person involved, the uh, members and and the public at large, have an opportunity to be in this process. Ryan. Well, and Neva's absolutely right. And, and on the residency side, I'm, I'm all too familiar with those, those residency challenges, having <laughs> gone through one myself and survived and ultimately went all the way to the Supreme Court. And uh, the Supreme Court, uh, by, a, by an eight to nothing vote, uh, Justice Hargrave at the time, recused uh, because uh, he lived in my district. Um, but they said that I lived in Seminole County. So I, I feel I've got a Supreme Court opinion that says that I uh, am from Seminole County. So I, I love that. But I, uh, I think that, you know, as Neva's talking, a lot of these decisions have, have already been made. They're going to hash this out. They don't want to be there any longer than a week. Um, and I, one of the, uh, just to add to, to Neva's comments, um, that to me, one of the most interesting things about this are the things that aren't included in this special session call. Uh, there had been a number of lawmakers that had been asking the governor to add a number of things to his uh, call for a special session. Uh, not the least of which were issues regarding max vaccine mandates and, and mask mandates and local control and ordinances around those issues related to the to the pandemic and uh, mitigating the spread of COVID-19. So those aren't on there. I don't know, uh, you know, what kind of tea leaves that you can uh, read into that. But, uh, you know, for people that were concerned or some people that were hopeful that we would have a mini legislative session this fall, uh, where lawmakers would be uh, considering some measures uh, potentially prohibiting um, the use of vaccine mandates by employers in the state of Oklahoma. That's just not happening, or at least not right now. And it's it's not a part of the special session. And when you see folks like uh, the House floor leader, John Eccles, saying we want to be done in a week, it doesn't seem like legislative leadership has a big appetite for wanting to stick around and hash that out this fall either. Well, and we're talking about them coming back in the middle of November, November 15th for a week or perhaps a little longer, but they will be coming back into regular session in February. So there's not that much time in between uh, in terms of uh, the business at hand is the redistricting. And I think the business before uh, coming before them in February will be a multitude of bills, as we know, and we'll talk about uh, for months. But right now, I think uh, this is this is the hot ticket on the table and something that uh, needs to be uh, conducted swiftly, uh, correctly, and then uh, everyone will know moving forward before the April 13th, 14th, and 15th filing dates. Uh, they'll be around the corner very quickly, and we need to have this all in place. Governor Stitt names the first woman to take over as the state's higher education chancellor. Emporia State University President Allison Garrett will succeed longtime higher ed leader Glenn Johnson. Stitt says he picked Garrett for her experience in university leadership as well as the private sector where she worked as a vice president and legal counsel at Walmart for 10 years. Ryan, what are your thoughts on Garrett's hiring? You know, I wish her the very best. I I think, you know, the chancellor position is one of the most uh, politically fraught and difficult positions in the state of Oklahoma, which I think speaks to the, um, you know, the, the capabilities and, and uh, um, 
you know, fantastic job that Glenn Johnson has done for decades in that position, the ability to survive in that position through multiple governors, multiple iterations of the, the state board of regents, um, and, you know, all the while steering higher ed through some pretty tumultuous periods, especially from a budget standpoint, it speaks to the fact that, you know, this is not a job where people typically can stick around that long because it's just so difficult. Um, and then the very fact that Chancellor Johnson is is retiring, uh, I think, you know, it's important to remind our listeners that this is a uh, another result, whether you like it or not. This is another result of putting more power in the executive branch in the governor's hands and his ability to really direct the Board of Regents as to what he wants. I mean, he's signaled, um, I think, over a couple of years now uh, that he wanted Johnson out and he wanted his own person in and the regents complied and Johnson set a retirement date and and resigned because he saw the writing on the wall. Um, and now, you know, Jeff Hickman, who's uh, you know a, a former uh, member of the Oklahoma House and uh, and, a, and a friend of mine, you know, led this search with the the Board of Regents. They conducted a nationwide search um, and found you know what they believe in uh, and Allison Garrett is is, is the best uh, best possible candidate to come in and lead uh, the state's higher education system at a, a really critical time uh, for the state. So you know, I, I wish her the best. I, I think that um, you know she'll have some political capital. Um, both from the support of the university presidents, which there are several in attendance uh, at the press conference earlier this week, uh, but also from the regions themselves. But, you know, make no mistake about it. This is Governor Stitt's appointment, which uh, traditionally it has not been. The governor may have had some influence, but has never had this kind of influence over the selection of a chancellor. Neva. Well, I think when we look at this process, as you just outlined, Ryan, I mean, they went through a nationwide search. It was kind of a start and stop uh, given last year with COVID. But now that the decision's been made, it was a unanimous decision by the the State Board of Regents. And I think when you look at the resume, um, you have someone who really has the skill set to to jump in on day one, which will be November 8th, and uh, move forward as the as the CEO, basically, of higher education in Oklahoma. And I think when you when you look at the fact that just listening to uh, Allison Garrett as she made her uh, comments at her first news conference, I mean, she talked about uh, that she was interested in influencing the number of students that attend college. Uh, she cared what their majors were. She wanted to work with the 25 uh, uh, Oklahoma College uh, University, public college and university presidents uh, that she wanted to uh, uh, help to create what she called, use the word robust workforce. And I think that you're, what we see is a blending of uh, uh, someone with the background, as we say, the business background, having been an attorney and worked at a major corporation for 10 years, then gone into the academic world, this blend. And the backdrop to this that I think is also interesting and noteworthy is the fact that her alma mater is an Oklahoma Uh, institution of higher ed. She's a a graduate of Oklahoma Christian University. Uh, She also has uh, taught and been involved in administrative positions at several other universities. So she has a a broad resume. I think she's someone that uh, recognizes what she's coming into, and I think uh, she will be able to hit the ground running. And, And from a From the standpoint of Oklahoma, when we think about the fact that we have new presidents at Oklahoma State University, new president Mm -hmm. at the University of Oklahoma, and a new chancellor for higher education, I mean, this is a wonderful opportunity for for a real major 
uh, focus and move forward uh, with uh, with a uh, with higher education being at the forefront. So I think this new leadership, the fact that uh, uh, the new chancellor, first female, uh, just as we saw not uh, just a few months ago at OSU with mm-hmm. the first uh, female president. I mean, there are a lot of things, uh, regardless of regardless of whether uh, someone wants to say who had more influence. At the end of the day, it's a rigorous process. Uh, being vetted for a position like a chancellor position anywhere in the country. And so to make it to the top four finalists and then to be the unanimous pick, I think uh, probably speaks volumes uh, by itself in terms of her future leadership potential. Well, and another connection in her Oklahoma resume is our Oklahoma connections in her resume uh, has a law degree from the University of Tulsa. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you know, private school, uh, but they've got a new president there, former Congressman Brad Carson. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, there's there's a lot of it's there's a lot of new faces in Oklahoma higher education. And, uh, you know, I, I think that this is an exciting and pivotal time. And, uh, you know, Godspeed to all of them, because it's uh, that's that is one of the being a president of a university in and of itself is one of the hardest jobs in the state. Uh, but to be chancellor, uh, you know, is probably more difficult than even being governor. And I think the whole workforce conversation is critical right now. I mean, we've seen so many uh, comments, so many studies, so much uh, uh, being written about the fact that we need a strong workforce in this state if we're going to continue to uh, uh, see business grow, if we're going to see uh, the ability to compete uh, against other states to bring major industry and business into our state. You have to have a workforce ready and um, and 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 there on the ground to be able to uh, make those things happen. So I think this focus is uh, is timely and i think it will be very important to see in the uh, in the next legislative session how lawmakers respond to all of this in terms of uh, uh, their look long term from a funding standpoint as well state senator nathan dom is joining the race for next year's u.s senate election the broken arrow republican is joining two others for the primary election to remove senator james langford Dom is no stranger to this program for many of his right, far-right views and legislation. Neva, what do you think of his chances to unseat Lankford? Uh, and we well, must admit that also he is a client of yours. That's right. Um, for full disclosure, that that is correct, uh, Michael. But you know, I think I mean I think where we are. Neva, the- Neva, I, I hate to, I hate to interrupt you, but it wasn't clear which of the folks is your client. Right, your client I'm is sorry. Senator uh, Langford. Langford. Senator Langford is a client of yours. I want to make sure everyone knows that. Yes, <laughs> not Nathan let's, Dom, Senator Langford. Let's, let's be clear. Yes, uh, but I think in this race, what we're looking at is just the continue the continuing um, evolving political landscape. I mean, in this race and other races where we're seeing uh, people make their decisions to uh, to jump in in primaries, nothing, uh, nothing unusual about that. I mean, we still have several months before filing. But um, I think in, in this instance, as as Michael said, I mean, here's someone who is a state senator, has a profile, uh, will run the kind of race he wants to run and uh, has run for Congress before. So uh, he certainly uh, this is not his first jump into the the um, the congressional waters, so mm-hmm. to speak, in terms of uh, this style of federal race, as opposed to just a, a legislative race. And we'll uh, we'll watch with interest as time goes on uh, with these candidates and others and uh, uh, see what happens out on the campaign trail. Ryan. Well, it was interesting. Uh, Jason Lawmeyer, the uh, the 
first Republican to jump in the race to challenge uh, Senator Lankford from the right. Uh, he responded to Senator Dom's uh, entry into the race as almost a conspiracy theory, uh, uh, kind of, if not outright accusing a uh, collusion between State Senator Dom and uh, U.S. Senator James Lankford to bring in a more far right candidate to split the vote uh, of, of Law Meyer's support of you know, far right conservatives in the Republican primary. I just got to tell you, if I, I don't think that there's a shred of uh, truth uh, to that allegation. And it's, it's really, uh, I think, a uh, just a misunderstanding of Lawmeyer's you know, real presence in this race so far. Uh, I mean, I've seen polling. Senator Lankford is in a commanding position uh, for re-election, both in the Republican primary and then ultimately in the general election. Um, it would take some unprecedented event uh, um, or, or unforeseen event of, of a tremendous magnitude uh, to get to a point where Senator Langford would be uh, in jeopardy of losing that Republican primary. Um, now, that being said, it's it is going to be a test of Senator Langford uh, and, and where he will stand uh, moving forward. You know, if if Senator Dom is able to, um, you know, demonstrate some sort of viability in this race, you know, whether that's through some polling or some early fundraising. And again, it's it's unclear where those numbers are going to come from or where those donors are going to come from. Um, but, you know, it's, it's no secret that Senator Dom has wrapped himself uh, just one in one uh, with former President Trump. And we've seen former President Trump uh, be involved in some of these races and the primaries. And, you know, there's no indication that that's going to happen here. And there's no indication that if, if President Trump showed up in Oklahoma, former President Trump showed up in Oklahoma, that it would move people uh, one way or the other. So and you'll recall that Senator Langford was giving the speech uh, giving his speech um, uh, to the United States Senate at the time that the insurrection on January 6th broke through uh, the, the barriers and the doors of, of the United States Capitol. And then he came back later um, and, and ended up voting for the certification of the Electoral College. Um, you know, that, of course, will be an issue. I'm sure Senator Don will make that an issue, uh, you know, whether or not that can gain any sort of national traction seems unlikely given Senator Lankford's strong position in the polls right now. And I think let's remember, I mean, when we see an incumbent United States senator on the ballot for re-election, uh, the, uh, the numbers, the, the polling strength, uh, the 70 percent plus uh, uh, favorability among Republicans, certainly in a primary. I mean, you have to look at that number. That's a pretty daunting number to go up against when you look at the fundraising ability and the ability to, to be raising already in the millions of dollars uh, for re-election campaign. Um, those things are what people both in state, primary voters uh, in particular, and from the national perspective of uh, handicapping these races, those are the things you look at. And um, uh, I think anyone that has observed uh, James Lankford in, in prior campaigns or has uh, watched him during his tenure in both uh, the Congress and the United States Senate know that he takes every everything seriously, that he uh, works as hard as anyone uh, can possibly work uh, on uh, for the people of Oklahoma. And so I think, again, everyone has the opportunity to uh, file and run for any race they choose. And uh, that's what elections are all about. And we will uh, we'll see as we move forward with all of these races next year, um, if we see more folks uh, jump in, there's still much speculation on many of these statewide races. Uh, uh, people still uh, talking about the expectation that there will be some other primaries that will develop. 
We'll just have to wait and see. Now, on the Democrat side, it is, uh, I don't think, also much of a surprise that we're not seeing much activity. I mm-hmm. mean, we're not seeing very, uh, we're seeing very few announcements for folks that are announcing uh, to run for the statewide offices, the the uh, the uh, uh, even the local and legislative uh, positions. And I think that's reflective, again, of the strong uh, Republican sentiment, the strong Republican numbers uh, in our state, and the fact that uh, uh, this is a strong red state and will uh, no doubt remain that way uh, in the coming election. A state lawmaker is threatening the Oklahoma City Thunder over its policy requiring fans to be vaccinated or test negative for COVID-19 72 hours before a game. Senator Sean Roberts attacked the basketball team for making this decision. The Hominy Republican says if the Thunder doesn't revise the policy, lawmakers should re-examine tax benefits guaranteed to the organization. Ryan, do you think the threat holds any weight with Thunder officials? I, I don't. Um, I think that you know they've, they've seen uh, similar threats in the past based on the decision of players to kneel uh, during the national anthem uh, in the wake of the George Floyd protests that were happening during the last summer. Uh, and we you know, may continue to see it into this season as well. And that didn't go anywhere. Yeah, I, I'm all for examining tax credits that we're giving to, to these businesses. I mean, the, the fact that um, Oklahoma is on the hook to you know provide bil- uh, millions and millions of dollars to organizations like the Thunder uh, when when their payrolls are you know well above what most companies are in the state of Oklahoma. I and mean, there's all benefit to that. They're paying taxes. And I mean, but um, but to condition uh, tax credits on the um, uh, acceptance or um, implementation of a, a particular political belief uh, by lawmakers. Um, I don't think that that's going to fly. I don't think that that's good policy. And and in some instances, it, it may, uh, in fact, especially whenever it came to uh, the, the kneeling at the national anthem, uh, it'd be unconstitutional, unconstitutional requirements on the ability of these companies to apply for and accept these, these tax credits. So I, I don't think that this goes anywhere. I think that uh, a more um, uh, important inquiry would be, are the are Oklahoma taxpayers getting a real benefit uh, out of these millions of dollars in tax credits mm-hmm. that we give to some of the largest corporations in the state? That's, a, to me, a, a much more productive and needed conversation uh, and, and, you know, less here. I mean, this is a, a decision by a private sector business. And and frankly, um, you know, with with, you know, without a lot of interference, um, you know, or with it without a lot of reach, you know, we can see instances where, especially in the Republican Party, there is an emphasis on government staying out of the decisions of uh, the private sector. And, um, you know, here we see it you know, playing out because it's a political because vaccinations uh, and COVID mitigation efforts have unfortunately become a political uh, football instead of a public health question. Neva. Well, I think what you have is a term-limited legislator who likes to issue these, what I would call drive-by news releases uh, that, uh, you know, throw throw kind of the red meat out there to folks that, that follow, follow him or folks, uh, you know, like him in the legislature. It's nothing new. He's done this, uh, time, you know, several times before, even, uh, as Ryan said, uh, going after the uh, Oklahoma City Thunder. But let's face it. I mean, it, Ryan is right. I mean, there you have to get to the specifics. I mean, the the Thunder came to Oklahoma City. Uh, they were granted they were granted uh, tax benefits uh, that came under the Quality Jobs Act. That is still in place and will be until 
2024, and that conversation then will come up uh, of uh, about the merits of that and whether uh, whether it should continue. But the bottom line is, if you're going to recruit industry, if you're going to recruit uh, professional uh, uh, teams to the state, if you're going to do the things that make us a a a big league city, a big league state, it takes uh, it it takes all of this cooperation, and oftentimes these incentives and these. Uh, uh, and these uh, economic breaks uh, to attract business and industry and teams like the Thunder. So um, folks that don't like it, again, it's kind of the separation. Some people are never going to like it, but the bottom line is it's been wildly successful. Uh, I think when you, uh, if you were to poll it, you would see that the public would be strongly in favor of A, the team being here, B, the team being supported in the ways they have uh, that brought this about, and I think uh, it doesn't it doesn't uh, minimize the fact that again legislators have the right to make these statements, uh, uh, call these things out. It's part of the process, and it's just uh, in some instances I think people see some of these folks just being um, being um, willing to take the advantage of just dropping these press releases. Uh, uh, at will to just uh, get a little ink in the in in the paper or some uh, um, uh, some story on the radio or TV. And even Ryan's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. And programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of this week in Oklahoma politics at KOSU.org.